So your last book, How Children Succeed, focused on the growing importance of non-cognitive skills like perseverance, curiosity, grit, for all students to lead successful lives, and how children who grew up in poverty are often deprived of developing those skills. Uh, so this current book is more of a how-to guide, you say, for educators and others about cultivating such skills among low-income children to improve their chances for success. What does this book provide that the last did not? Um, I think it provides a, a, a couple of things. I mean, it's still, I have to admit, not completely how to. It doesn't have, you know, like five tips on what to do in the classroom. Um, uh, but but the main thing I think it provides is more of a um, clear framework for how, particularly for kids who are growing up in adversity, uh, what growing up in difficult circumstances um, does to kids that, that makes it sometimes difficult for them to succeed in school and then look specifically at what kind of interventions can help uh, overcome those difficulties uh, and make it easier for kids to succeed. Um, and so I look at that um, both in terms of K-12 education, but also in terms of early childhood, uh, different kinds of, of programs and interventions that seem to make a difference in children's school success, even though the interventions themselves take place well before the first day of formal schooling. Uh, and what I'm trying to do is organize all of those uh, programs and the ideas that underlie them together into this framework to give everybody, educators, uh, policymakers, philanthropists, parents, regular readers, uh, a sense of how we could do things differently in order to help more kids succeed. In addition, I'm curious, who have been some of the biggest influences on your work? Well, there are two groups of researchers who I particularly um, was influenced by and wrote, wrote about in this new book. Uh, and they're, they're, they're pretty separate, usually. Um, but I think that their work is pushing in similar directions. One is um, neuroscientists, and especially the subset of neuroscientists known as uh, neuro, uh, neuroendocrinologists, um, so these are people who write, uh, who, who study and, and are learning about our stress response system uh, and how this network in us is, functions sort of as this thermostat in early childhood that um, uh, gets clues from the environment as to what life is going to be like and then makes adaptations accordingly. Uh, and one of the things that in recent years these scientists have discovered is that the kind of adaptations that growing up in a very stressful home environment uh, produces in children uh, might make sense in the short term in those environments, but they're uh, really not so helpful when it comes to school. And so what I think that these scientists have done, um, and they include people like uh, Sabelle Raver and Clancy Blair and um, Philip Fisher and Mary Dozier, some of the people that I've written about in this book and, and other places, um, what I think they're able to do is give us a, a kind of clear sense of what some kids are bringing to school um, and, and how uh, poorly I think so many of our school systems, uh, how poor a job so many of our school systems do at, um, uh, at reacting to that, at dealing with kids who come in uh, with that kind of background. Um, and so I think that their research is sort of pointing this way to a different way of thinking about um, uh, adversity in, ch in childhood. So that's one set of people who influence me. The other is in the realm of motivation and mindset. Um, so these people tend more often to be psychologists, um, people like Camille Farrington, uh, David Yeager, Carol Dweck, and others. 
um, and educators who are influenced by them, uh, who I think are, are looking at the looking at the, at the reality of uh, how adversity affects kids, and then looking at it in school as uh, a question of, of what kind of environments, what kind of messages can we um, provide in the classroom, what kind of work can we assign kids, how can we talk to students, um, how can we shape schools differently in order to produce uh, an environment that really motivates children to succeed. Um, and they are, they are going beyond the kind of traditional behaviorist paradigm of trying to figure out the right mix of uh, punishments and rewards to motivate kids, and instead looking at intrinsic motivation and what kind of environmental forces tend to make kids feel motivated, not just for uh, an immediate reward, but for that deeper sense of accomplishment. Though the cultivation of these character strengths um, that you mentioned are crucial, you also make the argument that we should not test or teach these qualities the way that we would cognitive skills. And instead, the key to development of these qualities is to change children's environments, which takes the responsibility off of students um, to learn these skills and focuses on the attitudes and behaviors of educators and other mentors who create the learning spaces. Could you say more about uh, why we shouldn't measure these qualities and how we can begin to change environments both in and outside of school? Um, sure. So to start off with the question of measurement, uh, you know, it's not that I think that we shouldn't measure them. It's that I think we don't know how to measure them. Um, and and but that partly part of what I'm saying um, in this book is that that's okay. That that we should just accept that these these qualities in children are not um, sort of measurable skills like math and reading skills are. We are uh, not going to come up with the same you know the equivalent of the, the math SAT test. Uh, that you know does a pretty good job of measuring how much math you know at the end of high school. There's never going to be an equivalent uh, instrument that's going to be able to measure somebody's likelihood to persevere um, for a variety of reasons. One is it's just you know a test can't measure that because it's a it's more of a psychological uh, mindset than it is a particular skill, and because it also varies. It's very much you know our ability to persevere, our tendency to persevere is very much dependent on the environment that we're in and the kind of messages we're getting from that environment. So uh, lots of teachers um, uh, notice this phenomenon of uh, a student who you know is really good at persevering in the class down the hall but isn't persevering in your class at all or wasn't persevering last year but is persevering this year uh, or the other way around. So these aren't skills the way that uh, we think of you know, academic skills, something that you learn that you don't ever forget. They're much more about psychological uh, frames of mind that um, that are very much dependent on where kids are, and so that's why I think that trying, you know, focusing too hard on trying to measure and assess them um, isn't a very productive uh, direction to go. And I, I think it's a place where we're putting a lot of energy right now that could be better spent. Um, and uh, I, I do read about this one economist named Carabo Jackson, who uh, I think found this really interesting way to measure. Um, non-cognitive skills, which is that he measures their impact. He looks at which students tend to affect students' tendency to show up in school and to work hard and to not get in trouble. Um, and in a way, what he's saying is that, that that's what matters, um, that you know, trying to figure out whether those students have you know, this much grit or that much self-control is not what's important. What's important is the kind of behaviors that come out of having these mindsets or these uh, or these traits, um, and, and that those are the things that we actually care about as educators, how motivated, how connected, how engaged our students are. 
And then could you just talk a little bit more about how we can begin to change uh, environments both in and out of school? Sure. So again, drawing on these two bodies of research, um, I think that there are two big ways that we can change uh, environments. One is in early childhood in the home. Um, the best lever that we have to change uh, young children's environments when they're young is their parents uh, or their caregivers. Uh, and so I write about a few different interventions that work directly with parents, um, especially parents living in poverty, supporting them, um, and particularly supporting them in terms of the, the kind of emotional connection, the attachment that they have with their children. Um, and that sounds, I know, really sort of, you know, mushy and touchy-feely, but it's some of the most uh, solid science in, in, you know, in anything that I write about in this book. It's really clear that these sorts of interventions, um, which are on the level of like how you're holding and singing and talking with your baby, um, all of the kind of intimate interactions that go on between parents and young children, uh, that when parents get the right kind of support uh, and encouragement in those early years, it changes things for their children uh, in terms of their behavior, in terms of their academic skills, and even in terms of their neurobiology. You can see its effects uh, in terms of their cortisol levels, even though the intervention is with the parents and not with the children. So that's one whole set of interventions that I think can make a huge difference in how children do um, you know, on the first day of kindergarten and beyond. Uh, and then I think that there are some um, some school models that I write about that take much more seriously uh, the science of adversity, that look at what growing up in, in poverty or other forms of adversity do to children, and, uh, and try to come up with interventions that help them. And the, the, the toolboxes that I talk about that seem most effective um, fall into two categories. One is, uh, has to do with relationships. So creating situations inside schools where students feel a real sense of belonging and connection and relatedness. Um, and so different schools do that in different ways. Sometimes it's you know, informal connections with particular teachers. Um, there are some that use advisory periods or um, uh, after-school groupings to just have kids, ha make sure there's a place for each student to feel um, an ongoing sense of connection with some peers and with a teacher. Uh, and then the other toolbox has to do with, with work and particularly with challenge. Um, one of the things that, that the researchers in motivation who I read about uh, uh, have found is that um, work is actually uh, deeply motivating for students, that when they are doing work that feels to them um, meaningful and challenging and rigorous, um, they're actually more motivated to work. You know, I think we often think like we've got to go easy on kids who are struggling in school uh, and give them you know, really easy work so they build up their self-esteem, they think they're smarter than they really are. Uh, and I think actually kids don't fall for that. Uh, and what motivates them is what motivates anybody. It's doing a good job at something you didn't think that you were able to do. And so the schools that, that I think are doing the best job of intervening using that toolbox are finding ways to, to structure challenges uh, for students um, that are uh, achievable, but but really push them, you know, and push them uh, not just academically but socially as well, getting them to you know work in groups, to present in front of the class, um, helping them deal with criticism by going through multiple revisions rather than just doing you know one day's worksheet and then throwing it out, throwing it out. 
Um, this whole set of interventions that lots of different schools do, but certain school systems, um, I think, do a particularly good job of, changes the environment in the school um, from one where schoolwork is just something you've got to get through to something where schoolwork is a challenge that I think motivates kids on a really deep level. And I want to come back to this idea of the emphasis on early childhood as a crucial time to lay the foundation for these skills um, and the home environment being important even before children enter school. Uh, so for students who grow up in low-income homes with stressful environments, it's much more complicated and some might argue intrusive to change home life in the same way that schools can alter their classroom settings. Could you unpack this just a little bit? Sure. So. Um uh, I think that that is that that idea is is, is a definite barrier, and and there's there's certainly something to it. You know, there there's absolutely um, a sense I think that Americans have, and for good reason, that the home and the family is something outside of the, the public sphere. You know, it, it it's private, it's intimate, it's where we get to control our own lives. Uh, but I think that the 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 flaw in 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 the thinking um, that has kept us from using these strategies that, that, that have been demonstrated scientifically to work so well is in thinking that they have to be intrusive, that this is something that someone is imposing um, on somebody else. In fact, any time that I've been to uh, any, any of these programs that offer you know, support and encouragement and community to low-income parents, there's no resistance at all. I mean, these are well-run programs. They, they do go out of their way to not seem, you know, Superior and, and imperialist in terms of how they uh, how they work with parents, um, but it's not that hard. <laughs> it's just it's just sort of you know common uh, courtesy and compassion I think that motivates somebody to to work with parents in a in a beneficial sort of way. And when that happens, you know, the parents are really enthusiastic. When I first started reporting on these kinds of interventions uh, back. Ten years ago when I was writing about the Harlem Children's Zone, I wasn't a parent myself, so I, I was more um, uh, more prone to that idea that, like, maybe it's just not right to tell parents how to parent. Um, and then I had, had my own uh, children and realized that, like, parents are desperate for help. You know, like, all I wanted was, like, someone to talk to and, and a book to read and somebody to, to kind of make me feel like I was doing a not terrible job. And I think that that's especially true for parents who are isolated, who are stressed out, sometimes who are young, um, who have all of the additional stresses and pressures that come from growing up in, uh, in poverty or in a low-income community. Um, and so my sense is that those, uh, when, when uh, programs like this are offered to, uh, to parents, they are really enthusiastic about it and they feel like it is a big help. Um, so I don't think I don't think that that is the real obstacle. I think the real obstacle is our commitment as a society to provide enough of these kinds of programs because um, there's a huge disconnect between how effective they are and how effective the data demonstrates that they are, and how much uh, how, how much money we're committing to, uh, how many resources we're committing to make them happen. You also write that in 2013, 51% of public school students qualified as low income. It's more crucial than ever that public schools work to improve the futures of the growing number of students who face adversity. So what are the most important solutions that you offer at both the policy and classroom levels that schools should be paying attention to? So I think part of the answer on the policy level is to 
for us to, I mean, this is sort of a big picture answer, but for us to really think differently about the continuum of childhood, um, there is this, this, this disconnect uh, between what happens in early childhood and what happens beginning on the first day of kindergarten that goes all the way from the federal policy level when, you know, one, the early childhood is, is under the purview of the Department of Health and Human Services and then um, K-12 is under the purview of the Department of Education. But I think that that division replicates itself, you know, on the state level, on the county level, in individual communities. You know, we like even in, 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 in uh, yeah, in an individual neighborhood, the, the pre-K uh, and, and child care uh, teachers are not talking to the kindergarten teachers. Uh, and this just, just doesn't make sense. You know, it, 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 like childhood is a continuum. That's how children experience it. That's how families experience it. And this continuum really matters, especially for kids who are growing up in poverty, especially now that we understand through the science how important those early years are. Um, and if you're, a, if you're running a school system and you want the children in your community to succeed in your school system, one of the best levers you have, one of the best tools you have to make that happen um, is to support and help parents and families um, of young children. Uh, and, and yet, you know, the way that we've organized incentive systems, there, there's no incentive for those, those, you know, a superintendent or a principal uh, to, to take that action. There are no resources. There's no uh, bureaucracy that can make that happen. So that's one big change, I think, that, um, that you know, isn't easy to do on a small level, but I think could really uh, shift a lot about how, uh, how we create a system of support for kids who are growing, growing up in poverty. Uh, and then on the more sort of practical, like what can, what can any individual teacher do? I think sometimes when we talk about, like, big policy shifts like that in the Washington level, uh, if you're an individual teacher, it makes you feel, you know, disempowered, like there's nothing that you can do. But, but one of the things that's really um, striking to me in the research is how much um, small changes in the atmosphere of a classroom uh, in the way that you do uh, discipline and the way that um, – in the way that teachers talk to their students, that lots of these small changes, I think, can make a big difference when you're emphasizing sort of um, uh, classroom climate, when you're emphasizing a sense of connection and belonging. Um, there's lots of research that I read about in this new book that, that shows that not only does the experience of students get better, not only do they feel better about going to school, that also changes for the teachers. Uh, teachers tend to feel better about it when they're in a in a in a classroom that has a real sense of connection and community. Um, but then on top of that, students do better in school. You know that there are there are a number of interventions that I write about where the intervention is just uh, working with teachers to sort of improve classroom climate. But the result is like better reading and math scores. Um, you know the most sort of uh, hardcore cognitive. Um, uh, no child left behind level um, uh, measures of whether kids are succeeding, they're influenced by this much more um, uh, kind of emotional and psychological level. So um, I don't think there's, again, any sort of one thing that, that a teacher needs to do uh, every morning in order to make a classroom feel more uh, of a sense of, of connection and calm. Um, but I think there are a number of things that, that any uh, teacher can do to change uh, the, the, the feel of the classroom. And my hope is that reading the book, this, this, this data, this science will kind of um, uh, point teachers toward a framework for how uh, classrooms and how schools could be different. 
Grit has gained national attention through the work of researchers like psychologist Angela Duckworth. Could you talk about where your work differs with hers and where it aligns? So Angela is a friend of mine and someone I've learned a lot from. I've written about her. I've blurbed her new book, so I'm a big fan of hers. And I think that the place that our work aligns is that that we're both really concerned about the same thing, of how to help more children succeed, and we're both persuaded that this psychological dimension of being a student is a big part of why some kids aren't succeeding and where we might find the tools to help children succeed more. Um, uh, where we differ, I feel, I feel like there is, I feel like our, our differences are, are pretty subtle. I've actually had some conversations with her recently in which we've tried to figure out our differences. Um, you know, I, I think that she would say that there needs to be a balance between um, thinking about what the environment is how, how we use the environment as a as a tool to shape kids' psychology, um, and more sort of academic pedagogical techniques. She thinks there are, are she thinks I think more than I do that there are particular uh, ways to teach skills like grit. There are things you can do, you know, lessons and um, um, uh, exercises you can do in a classroom that can uh, improve students' grit and their other non-cognitive skills. Um, I think those things uh, also potentially have some validity, but I think that I'm, I'm more convinced uh, than I was a few years ago that that's not the most productive uh, direction for us. The most productive direction to try to change student psychology is to think about what, what educators can do, what policymakers can do uh, to shape the environment that surrounds kids. So to me, the, the differences are, are kind of subtle shadings in where we should put our attention. Yeah, but I think in, in, in that way we're heading in slightly different directions. Mm -hmm. In switching the focus of improving non-cognitive skills and as a result student outcomes to environments and the adults who create them, how can we know that children are developing these skills? And in addition, how should we talk to students about the importance of character in their lives? I write in the book about the work of this uh, economist in Northwestern named Carabo Jackson, who came up with this really um, interesting way of measuring whether whether non-cognitive skills exist, right? Whether whether kids uh, are showing up in school, are um, uh, staying out of trouble, are working hard in their classes. And to my mind, I, you know, we don't need to use his specific proxy measure that he invented for this paper that I write about. But I think that there's something there that really, like, the way to measure students non-cognitive capacities is to look at what they're doing in the classroom and if they're acting motivated, if they're acting um, connected and engaged, then that's all I care about. <laughs> you know, like that, that's what I care about more than being able to put a number on their grit or their perseverance or their self-control. Um, and I think that, the, you know, the nice thing about that is that those are actually um, things that we can measure. You know, we, I think we can figure out ways to, to evaluate how connected and engaged students are. And I think we can recognize that, that increasing that, that motivation and that connection and that engagement is the responsibility of, of educators as much as it is the responsibility of students. Um, so, you know, I think any time a measure gets, gets into a high-stakes sort of assessment, uh, it gets complicated because, you know, if we're trying to measure students' motivation then, uh, and we're, we're, like, making that a high-stakes assessment, that, then that throws off a lot of those measures. Um, but I, but I, think, I think the answer is to, is to not have them be super high-stakes assessments uh, and instead to use those sorts of 
um, behavioral engagement motivation measures as just a way of, <laughs> excuse me, diagnosing what's working and what's not working in any given school. How should we talk to students about the importance of character in their lives? I think it's useful to sort of separate these two things out a little bit. So I, you know, I do think that it's important to talk to kids about uh, about some of these qualities that we sometimes call character. Um, certainly with my six-year-old son, I talk to him about these things all the time. Um, but to my mind, it's most helpful to not talk about them in the abstract, um, but to talk about them in terms of specific moments and how they can better handle them. Um, and so, like, I don't talk to my son about grit and perseverance and whether he has it and why grit is important in some sort of abstract way. But I do talk to him when we, you know, I'm helping him with his homework and he has a problem that is freaking him out and he doesn't want to do it and he's, you know, hyperventilating and can't calm down. I talk to him about how he's feeling, like why, you know, why he's getting stressed out, uh, why it's important in that moment to stick with your problem, why, like, how learning happens in those moments of discomfort. Um, so, you know, I, I, I give him the message that sticking with a difficult uh, problem or situation is really important. Um, and, I, and I think in the process that's developing some of these non-cognitive capacities in him. But I think putting it in terms of the, 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 the struggle that he's facing right at that very moment um, is more effective than talking to him about it in some, um, uh, in some abstract way. Because I think those, in, when you get to uh, those sorts of character abstractions, um, I think that it, it's easy for kids to, to see that language as being very um, judgmental and moralistic. And, and a lot of the words I think that we, uh, that we use in this realm have kind of a moral balance to them, things like you know, grit and fortitude and character. Um, and so when we're talking to kids about, well, you know, do you have these, these you know, important moral heroic qualities or do you not, um, it's hard for them, it, it's easy for them to see that as, sort of a, a, a failing that they're not going to be able to overcome. But when we talk to them about it in terms of, like, here's what you did at this particular moment that didn't work, and here's a strategy that you could try that might work better um, to persevere, to get through, an, uh, you know, to bounce back from a disappointment, to deal with a conflict with a friend or with a teacher, um, and we give them the message that this is something that you can solve on your own, that, I think, is incredibly powerful uh, kind of support, whether we're a parent or a teacher. Um, and those moments, I think, are going to build these non-cognitive capacities much more effective than an abstract lecture might. 